0: a spiteful boss, a manipulative mother, a desperate housewife. We know these women. We've lived with them, or worked with them, or heard about them, maybe caught a glimpse of them in our mirrors. Today, we're going to meet their ancient counterparts in Scripture. I promise you'll be intrigued, inspired, perhaps even walloped by our guest, Liz Curtis Higgs. Our focus, Slightly Bad Girls of the Bible. Join us now for The Land and the Book. Our host, as always, is Old Testament scholar, Dr. Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger. Hey, by the way, when our program is over, where do you turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people?
1: Life of Messiah is focused on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to those important topics. We encourage you to check out their content, which you'll find inspiring and uplifting. Now, as a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org, and then click on the Moody Radio button. All right, this opening segment, if you're new to the program, is devoted to a look at current events throughout
0: the Middle East region. Charlie scans lots of sources and brings us this uh, collection of stories that are all important. Number one, the battle between Israel's ruling coalition and the judiciary took another unexpected turn as Israel's Supreme Court agreed to hear a petition in early September to disqualify Netanyahu from serving as prime minister. Charlie, what's behind the petition and how could this impact the ongoing debate?
1: Well, under Israel's legal system, people can petition the court to intervene in a matter, and that's what's happening here. Uh, during his previous ten years as prime minister, Netanyahu signed a conflict of interest agreement with the former attorney general, stating he wouldn't try to push judicial legislation that could impact or influence his corruption trial, which is still ongoing. When the new coalition was formed following the last election, Netanyahu initially tried to stay out of the legislation on judicial overhaul, But because of his silence, the more radical members of the coalition began to push for some very dramatic changes. Netanyahu finally was compelled to step in to stop some of the more extreme proposals and to push for compromise. The coalition passed a law shielding the prime minister from being recused from office for his involvement, and it was passed as what they would call a quasi-constitutional basic law, which the high court has never interfered with before. The petitioners, including the former IDF chief of staff, claim Netanyahu has now violated the earlier conflict of interest agreement and should therefore be removed as prime minister by virtue of being incapacitated through his legal problems. And the current attorney general, who's technically a member of the government, then sided with the petitioners and asked the high court to recuse Netanyahu from serving as prime minister while he's on trial, which could continue for several more years. The judges have scheduled the hearing on September 12 to hear the petition. Now, the issue highlights the reason Israel needs to come to some consensus on how to limit the powers of the judiciary. In essence, the judiciary could overthrow laws intended to serve as Israel's constitution and remove Israel's prime minister by determining a conflict of interest agreement covering one specific legal area is sufficient to remove him from any involvement in any legal issue. To Netanyahu's supporters, it looks like an activist attorney general and an activist judiciary seeking to remove their adversary and nullify an election. And this could potentially add fuel to the fire in the fight over further judicial reform.
0: Well, it's no secret that for years, decades even, Russia and Iran have been allies. But apparently, Russia is reneging on its promise to deliver advanced fighter jets to Iran. Is this a sign of cracks maybe developing in their relationship or could something else be causing the
1: delay? Yeah, it's not completely clear what's causing the delay, but Iran has made the delay public. In fact, the head of Iran's Air Force said they need Russia's advanced fighter jets, but they don't know when they're gonna be added to their fleet. Now, some have suggested that recent Israeli conversations with the Kremlin had caused Russia to postpone delivery of the jets. However, there might be other possibilities. For example, the war between Russia and Ukraine has hurt Russia's arms industry. The embargoes placed on Russia by the West have created shortages of materials and electronic components for their military hardware. So it's possible Russia is holding off on delivery to make sure they're meeting their own military needs first. It's also possible the two countries have agreed to hold off at least until October when some of the import-export regulations under the nuclear agreement between Iran and the West are set to expire. But whatever the reason, Israel is definitely happy for the delay because Iran receiving those advanced fighters, it would just be another wrinkle that Israel would have to work through should they ever have to attack Iran's nuclear facilities.
0: From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book, the one-hour flyover of the Middle East with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler. I'm John Geiger, working us through a list of current event stories. Well, July was Amateur Archaeology Month in Israel. All right, not really, though the Israel Antiquities Authority put out a call for anybody interested in archaeology to spend Thursdays in July volunteering to make bricks to help conserve the
1: crumbling ruins of Tel Gezer. So how did the project go? Well, the project was definitely a hit with those who volunteered. Tel Gezer is an amazing biblical site, though my wife would disagree with me on that because several years ago I took her there on exploring and, and she slipped and broke her ankle Now, the site has remains from both the Canaanite period and from the time of King Solomon. In fact, one of the gates uncovered there dates to Solomon's days and Gezer's name by name in 1 Kings 9.15 as one of the cities fortified by Solomon. But the project in July was actually working to help preserve the ruins of the gate from before the time of Solomon, about 3,500 years ago. Uh, The mud brick walls from that time had been uncovered, and they'd started crumbling due to erosion and some vandalism and a brush fire that tore through the site last year. The Antiquities Authority called for volunteers to help make around 1,200 mud bricks to replace some of the ones that had crumbled. The bricks were made the old-fashioned way, a technique that was used by Israel in Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Hmm. A mixture of mud and sand and stone and straw mixed together and then packed into wooden frames and let to dry and harden those aren't the bricks we use around our homes. They're, they're sun-dried adobe and each brick is about 18 inches long, 12 inches wide, and around 4 inches thick and they're fairly heavy. Uh, the project helped connect these volunteers to the past as one of the heads of the project said it made the volunteers feel like the site belongs to them and uh, who knows maybe someday they'll be able to take their grandchildren back to the site <laughs> and show them the very bricks that they helped restore. Charlie, uh, plenty
0: of sunshine over there in Israel. How long does it take to sun-bake one of those long bricks that you're talking about?
1: Uh, They tend to say about a day, but actually I think they let them set for a few days to make sure that they're good and hard before they start packing them up and stacking them. Sounds like a fun outing.
0: All right. A group of physicians-slash-entrepreneurs at Sheba Medical Center have developed a product that harnesses the power of artificial intelligence to diagnose a patient's cardiac problems in just minutes. Tell us about this exciting innovation
1: from Amazing Israel. Yeah, I found this story to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, You know, if a patient today can make it to a cardiac care unit at a local hospital, a trained cardiologist can conduct multiple tests and diagnose potential heart problems. But what if a problem develops while the patient's in the waiting room at, at his primary care physician? Or if the problem is faced by the EMTs who pull up in an ambulance? Or if it's in a country or a region with less access to advanced care? Oh, that's what prompted these remarkable physicians to develop this system. The software in the system integrates a handheld ultrasound probe with a digital tablet and access to the cloud to provide accurate analysis and diagnosis based on a comparison of millions of validated images. And it does that in minutes. Now, while the system doesn't replace a full echocardiogram by an expert technician uh, that's interpreted by a cardiologist, what it does do is provide core information within about a five to seven minute exam. After scanning just two spots on a patient's chest with that ultrasound probe, the system sends the data to a cloud-based platform where it's analyzed and compared to a vast database of existing scans. The analysis is then sent back to the tablet almost immediately. The system is in operation in Israel and it's wrapping up a clinical trial here in the States at two different healthcare systems. The doctors actually hope to have it approved for sale sometime next year. Imagine, John, a system that can simplify complex technology so it can be used in primary clinics, urgent care facilities, rural clinics, skilled nursing facilities, and other remote locations around the world. They call it POCAD, Point of Care Assisted Diagnosis, and it's being developed by a company called ASAP. Now, that's A-I-S-A-P, artificial intelligence as soon as possible. And of course, It's all coming our way from amazing Israel. Wow, truly amazing. Hey, Charlie, a number of our
0: listeners have been following the trial of Netanyahu and all the legal proceedings. A number of weeks ago, we reported in this current event segment that uh, a motion has been made that some of the evidence that was uh, obtained against Netanyahu was done so illegally, and therefore, the whole thing should be tossed out. What is the current thought? Anything happening legally?
1: Well, it's still ongoing. Uh, the Supreme Court has to rule on some of that. They, the Supreme Court did suggest that the uh, at least one of the charges ought to be dropped, but the prosecuting attorneys decided not to. So right now, that's still working its way through. I think at some point, the uh, justices themselves will need to weigh in on the uh, impact of that material. But they've not thrown it out. And uh, uh, sadly, this trial, which is going on for years, just continues to be the uh, the case that never ends. Hmm. Well, a full program today. Up next, a
0: conversation about slightly bad girls of the Bible. Our guest, Liz Curtis-Higgs, a powerful communicator. You'll enjoy that. Questions and answers? Yeah, we got a full segment full of those, and Charlie Dyer's devotional as well. It's all a part of this program we call The Land and the Book. You can always hear it again at thelandandthebook.org. A spiteful boss, a defiant employee, a manipulative mother, a desperate housewife, an envious sister. Boy, we know these women. We've lived with them, worked with them or maybe caught a glimpse of them in our mirrors. Well, we're about to take a look at their ancient counterparts in scripture. I'm John Geiger, and this is The Land and the Book. Get ready to be amused, inspired, perhaps even walloped by our guest, Liz Curtis Higgs. And before we hand her the microphone, a risky move, by the way, let's uh, first take in a quick idea about loving our Jewish friends for Christ. Most evangelicals believe Judaism is the faith of the Old Testament and Christianity is New Testament faith. Is that a correct view, though? Better get that figured out as we think about sharing Jesus
2: with our Jewish friends. West Tabor is with Life and Messiah. Help us out here. Sure. In reality, already by Isaiah's day, the, quote, traditions of the elders, end quote, were displacing a loving reverence for God. The Lord said to Israel through the prophet Isaiah, "'This people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service,' but they remove their hearts far from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Jesus quotes this in Mark 7. In Romans 10, Paul describes the ultra-Orthodox of his day as having a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, who, not knowing about God's righteousness, are seeking to establish their own through merit in God's favor.
0: So, Wes, what then is the role of the Old Testament in our sharing the gospel with our
2: Jewish friends? Well, we remember that the New Testament wasn't even written when the apostles began using the scriptures to point to Messiah. Yeshua used Moses and all the prophets in Luke 24 to show how he fulfilled Messianic prophecy. We should be able to share our faith from the Old Testament. The Moody Handbook of Messianic Prophecy by Dr. Rodelnick and Bloom is a great resource. Good to connect with Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah.
0: Liz Curtis-Higgs admits, My goal is simple to help women embrace the grace of God with joy and abandon. Well, I'd say she does that eloquently and powerfully through her gift of writing. She's written 30 books, by the way, more than 3 million copies in print. I'm guessing you've read some of her best-selling nonfiction series, Bad Girls of the Bible, Really Bad Girls of the Bible. Uh, How about unveiling Mary Magdalene? And, hey, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Liz and her family live in Louisville, Kentucky, and I want to say thanks to Liz for being a part of the land of the book today.
3: Oh, such a joy. Thanks for inviting me.
0: We are here to engage a conversation based on your book, Slightly Bad Girls of the Bible. And let's start by having you explain how you define slightly bad girls of the Bible.
3: Well, slightly bad girls would be, how can I say this, all of us girls. Um, They're mostly good, but slightly bad. And this is where most of us land. Far from evil, hardly perfect, you know, just not quite got it together. Now, understand that these slightly bad girls in Scripture are, frankly, the women we usually think of as the good girls. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel, Hagar. And it's like, gee whiz, they're bad girls? Well, yes, slightly. And it's in that slightly badness that we have a connection with them. I never learn from women who are perfect, which is good because there aren't any. And just for the record, John, there aren't any perfect men either. (laughs) Um, In fact, there's nobody perfecting Scripture except Christ himself. And so knowing that we're flawed, knowing that we are not perfect, helps us understand how grace-filled our God is, Mm. that he knows our imperfections. And if I may say this, some people might take me to task on it. I don't believe that God loves us in spite of our flaws. I think He loves us because of our flaws. And I say this because of good old John three sixteen. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That love, because we needed saving, is who God is, and it's His full awareness that we need Him, that we're imperfect, that we haven't got it together. What a patient and loving God we serve.
0: In the book, uh, you make this comment, if you've read the other books in my Bad Girls of the Bible series, you know how willing I am to open the pages of my diary, if only to encourage my sisters that God's forgiveness covers the whole of our lives, not only the years before we knew him. Let me ask, how hard is it for you to be as brutally transparent as you are in these books?
3: Well, It's just interesting. 41 years ago, when I was a really, really, really bad girl, and God brought two ambassadors into my life to introduce me to him, I always say, no one leads somebody to Christ. Christ calls them unto himself, and they get to be the cheerleaders on the sidelines. (laughs) But these dear friends who didn't write me off. I mean, I was a mess. I'll spare you the gory details. They are in all my books. I always say I could run for public office because every bad thing I've ever done is in my books, right? (laughs) No surprises. Anyway, the point is that they could see my badness, but by God's kindness, they were given his eyes to see that I was worth saving at all. I didn't think I was but they did. And so they loved me into the kingdom. And so, you know, I'm just all about it. I know that God is able to save, but he also says in his word, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And that means I got to put it out there. So when I first came to know Christ and my pastor invited me to share my testimony at church, I'm like, wow, what is a testimony? That was not something I'd grown up with in my church in my childhood a testimony. You don't mean like tell people how I used to live. <laughs> and he said, "Well, you don't have to dwell on that, Liz, but yes, and then tell us how Christ has redeemed you." I'll never forget that day. It was Thanksgiving Eve 1982. We're going back a little bit here, and I stood up in front of 500 people that I went to church with who did not know that I was very recently former bad girl, and I shared my story. I had such a mantle of peace fall over my shoulders when I did that. I thought, oh, this is what you're supposed to do, is let people know Jesus really can save you, even when you've made a colossal mess of things. Mm. And so because I was always comfortable doing that, it seemed natural to do it in my books, even though it is a little harder, because you're not out there to explain yourself. The book travels all by itself into people's hands. I remember once speaking at an engagement, John, After sharing my testimony, I sat among the audience, and a woman turned around, and she said, do you know everybody is talking about you? (laughs) I said, oh, okay. (laughs) And I told her what I always say. It doesn't matter what they think of Liz. It only matters what they think of Jesus.
0: Well, why do some of us struggle with forgiveness as we do, uh, since we've gone down this road? We have no problem believing he forgives our sinful lifestyle before coming to Christ Yeah, we sometimes struggle really believing He forgives our sins today. What's with that?
3: Well, I don't know what's with that, but I know that it's a fact. And people just stumble. It's like, oh, no, now I should have it together. Well, we do have the gift of the Holy Spirit to help us have it together. That's good. But He is in this body of flesh. As long as we are living in our physical bodies with all its temptations and all its challenges, we are never going to walk the straight and narrow as much as we would love to. As I said, God knows this about us. He is prepared for this. No shocks. You know, when Eve reached for that fruit in the garden, God was not looking down going, no, 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 stop now. He was ready. (laughs) He was ready before the beginning of time with an answer for our sin. And you mentioned this in the introduction, and I so appreciated that. Our sin is all of our sin. So the past the present, the ones we're going to do before this day is done, some we haven't even thought of yet. And then all the ones between now and when we stand in his presence, all of it is covered by his beautiful gift of grace. Otherwise, then we would have to become, as it were, our own savior. We'd have to take care of this ourselves. That was never his intent. We are to live in a state of humility and gratitude for the one who can live a sinless life, showed us how it was done, died for our sins, rose from the dead, and made a way for us into heaven. It's just the gospel, friends. It's really good news.
0: It's The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. I'm John Gager, as intrigued as you are with what we're learning in our conversation today with Liz Curtis Higgs, who's written Slightly Bad Girls of the Bible. Your chapter, A Willful Bride, introduces us to Rebecca, one of those slightly bad girls, the girl who offered to draw water for the camels of Abraham's servant. and the book, you point out an important detail about that well. and I think it amplifies an important point about Rebecca herself. Explain.
3: Well, she's amazing to me, and to say that she starts out as a good girl in this story is an understatement. Up and down and up and down and up and down the well, she goes so many times to bring up enough water to water all those camels. It's impressive. And at this point, she's just being helpful. We don't get to climb in her head and know what she's thinking. We do, however, see what Laban is thinking. And uh, that is where things get very interesting in that story, because he's the one who realizes, oh, wait, this is Abraham's servant? Oh, he's got money, and if he wants my sister, I think we need to say yes about that, and on and on it goes. But Rebecca is innocent, I think is the word I would use for her at this point. Now, fear not, she will get slightly bad in the next chapter, (laughs) but at this point, um, we see the goodness, frankly, that Abraham's servant sees in her. She is willing, but she is also willful. And that's why the chapter is called A Willful Bride, because indeed, that part of Rebecca's nature does come out. And man, do I get that. Yeah.
0: She's a manipulator and a cheat with her own husband. I mean, you go, wow, that's a turn.
3: Yeah, but not till the next chapter, John. You're jumping ahead of yourself. (laughs) Uh, But yes, she is. She definitely, before all is said and done, not so impressive that she's willing to do anything to make sure her son—well, actually, they're both her sons. So that would be her favorite son, Jacob, is the one who is blessed.
0: You know, when you read the Gospels, it almost seems that Jesus is drawn to slightly bad girls, slightly bad boys. And I'm wondering, Liz, if somebody listening right now says, oh, that's me. I'm I'm past slightly. (laughs) I'm south of that. Would you talk to them about how they can know Jesus as the leader of their life, the forgiver of their sins? What do they need to do?
3: Well, beautiful question, and you are so right. Jesus loved to hang out with prostitutes, with tax collectors. The Pharisees were completely unhappy with him because he always seemed to be hanging out with the, quote, bad people. And he made it clear, that's who I came for. I didn't come for the well, but for the sick. And so for my friends who are there, and I get it, I was there. Some days I think I'm still there, just in the depths of failing the Lord over and over again, missing an opportunity to tell someone about him, missing an opportunity to give generously because I'd rather keep the money, missing an opportunity to tell people about Jesus. And so I'm grateful to have that opportunity now. Yes, friends, pray with me, if you will. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. It's hard to say it, but I know that I am. Because I've stumbled and fallen. I've hurt people. I've done hateful things. And I need a Savior. And Lord Jesus, that is what you came to do, to save all who will come to you. And so as you're waiting, Lord, we come to you. And we ask you to receive us, broken, dirty with the things of this world, minds that are less than clean or pure, actions that are worse. We leave them all in your hands, Lord Jesus. And we accept your redeeming gift, your death on the cross, that paid for every sin. It took six long hours, Lord, for you to pay for the sins of the world including ours. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you accept us and that we have the opportunity to accept your gift. May we do that now with humility and gratitude and joy. We're praying these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.
0: Amen. Thank you, Liz. If you just prayed along with Liz, we'd love to connect with you. Send us an email, will you? at the land and the book at moody.edu we have just hardly cracked open the cover of slightly bad girls of the bible but you could do more than that you can check it out for yourself and find all these very encouraging stories as you uh, connect with the book slightly bad girls of the bible a link to that book and Liz's website at our website thelandandthebook.org liz will you please come back again we're just getting started
3: Absolutely. What a blessing. Thank you. All right. That's Liz
0: Curtis Higgs, our guest today on The Land and the Book. Charlie's back with questions and answers next. From Moody Radio, this is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, who's about to tackle your questions about the Bible, prophecy, the Middle East. The good news is they're all welcome, and you can get yours to us with a quick email. I'll share that uh, information just a bit. First, though, a quick question for you. Once our program is over, where do you turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people?
1: Well, Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel, Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics and we encourage you to check out their content which will be inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of these upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio button. Well, I'm looking forward to today's uh,
0: questions, Charlie, starting with Ron, who says Mary and Elizabeth related. Luke one thirty six says they're relatives, with some translations calling them cousins. But Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron, it says in Luke 1, verse 5, while Mary was from the tribe of Judah. Can you help me out?
1: Yeah, and I'll start this way. We know genealogy was reckoned through the father back then. Uh, both the genealogies of Jesus in Matthew and Luke illustrate this. So Mary's father was from the line of David, while Elizabeth's father was from the line of Aaron. But we also know marriage was permissible outside an individual's tribe. Uh, Leviticus 21 in verses seven and 14 uh, gives the marriage prohibitions for priests in general and for the high priest in particular. They weren't allowed to marry a woman who was divorced or widowed or who'd been a prostitute. And they were to marry a virgin of his own people. Though the phrase could refer to one's immediate family or tribe, it's usually understood to mean he had to marry someone from the nation of Israel. So, someone from the line of Aaron could marry a woman from the tribe of Judah as long as she met the other qualifications. And now, finally, it's possible that Mary's mother and Elizabeth's mother were sisters, perhaps from the tribe of Judah. Elizabeth's mother married a man from the line of Aaron, and any children they had, including Elizabeth, would have been identified as belonging to the line of Aaron because that was the tribe of the father. Meanwhile, Mary's mother likely married within the line of David, so Mary was reckoned to be from the line of David. And that's at least one way you could have two women who are relatives be from different tribes. Interesting. Here's a question.
0: Ezekiel's prophecies regarding Egypt in chapter 29 verses 11 through 16 declares Egypt will be desolate for 40 years. Now is that prophecy fulfilled in the past or is it yet future? Verse 15 says Egypt will be so small it will never rule over the nations again. Considering the position Egypt now holds, I tend to think the prophecy is still future. But then chapter 30 describes Nebuchadnezzar conquering Egypt. So could the 40 years of desolation have already been fulfilled back then?
1: Well, I tend to see this prophecy fulfilled historically, and and I do associate it with the conquest of Nebuchadnezzar uh, there in Ezekiel 30. Uh, I also connect it, by the way, to Jeremiah 43, where Jeremiah predicts Egypt's fall to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, It's possible the passage could refer to a still future fulfillment, but it's hard to find a 40-year period of time for that future fulfillment, since the prophetic timeline from the rapture to the beginning of the kingdom era is only about seven years, based on Daniel 9.27. Uh, So anyway, all that to say, I agree that it's a problem passage. If it's been fulfilled historically, we only have the conquest of Nebuchadnezzar that seems to fit, though there's no external confirmation that it was desolate or despoiled for 40 years. But if it's still future, we have difficulty trying to find that 40-year period into what we know about the future. So that's why on balance, I lean toward a historical fulfillment.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. That's Charlie Dyer answering your Bible questions. I'm John Geiger, always curious to see what you guys are wondering about. Our good friend Jackie has emailed us with a question. She says, I I watched an online message on 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21, and the speaker took the phrase, we have a more sure word of prophecy, to mean that the English King James Version translation is more accurate than the original Hebrew and Greek, since Peter said what was written was more sure than what they heard on the Mount of Transfiguration. My question, what exactly did Peter mean when he wrote this?
1: Well, in verses 16 to 18, Peter makes it clear that he and the other apostles hadn't followed some cleverly devised myth or fables. And his main proof is the reality of the transfiguration when he saw with his own eyes the unveiled glory of Jesus and heard the father's direct words of affirmation and approval. Then beginning in verse 19, Peter speaks of the more sure word of prophecy. Now in light of verses 20 and 21, He's, I think he's referring to the Old Testament prophetic scriptures, which were not merely the thoughts of men, but the very words God had directed them to write. By calling them scripture in verse 20, he's clearly referring to the written word of God. Now, he's not saying the scriptures are more sure than what he'd actually seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. Rather, what I think he's saying is scriptures are a more sure word of prophecy in the sense of being very certain or very reliable. His readers were not with Peter and the others on the Mount of Transfiguration, but they had just as reliable a testimony to God's revelation of his son, the Old Testament prophetic scriptures. Uh, The written scriptures, especially the Old Testament prophecies, were God's light to help believers through the darkness of this age until the ultimate fulfillment of all God has promised. So Peter's linking the glorious revelation of Jesus he experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration with the equally glorious revelation of Jesus found in God's Old Testament prophecies. Both are reliable sources of light to keep us on target in what otherwise could be dark days. But one thing he's not referring to is the King James Version of the Bible in English.
0: Todd asks, has God revealed his name as Yahweh from his very first interactions with Adam and Eve, or did he not reveal his name until Genesis chapter 3? Noah refers to him as Yahweh in Genesis, so I'm guessing he was known by this name from the beginning, but I wanted to make sure.
1: Yeah, and we're not told exactly when God revealed his personal name to his creation, but it seems from the Bible that it was quite early. It was known by Eve in Genesis 4.1, and as you noted, it was noted by Noah in Genesis 9. Uh, it was also noted by Abraham in Genesis 15. So it does seem that he was known by his personal name from the very beginning, even before he reiterates his name to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. Cheryl
0: asks, My question is regarding what some reports say is almost here, the digital dollar. It's said to be a programmable form of currency that by design will render us virtually helpless over how our funds are used. It's not the mark of the beast. However, it seems our buying and selling will yet be under government control. Can you speak to this?
1: Yeah, and I've heard a lot of these reports, but I have some serious doubts about them. The government uh, might announce a move toward a digital currency at some point, but it'll take years to implement that kind of a system, and they have yet to figure out all the complexities that come with a digital currency. Now, it might come someday, but it will not be fully implemented, I don't think, anytime soon, and I don't see it connecting to the Antichrist or the end-time actions described in Revelation 13, at least with, with what's happening right now. I do know our government already has some restrictions on currency. For example, you have to report if you're carrying more than $10,000 worth of currency when you leave the country. Banks have to report transactions above a certain amount. Uh, These have been in place for some time, but they haven't yet led to government control. Now, these will make it all easier for a government to exert more control over its citizens' lives, you know, either in the U.S. or other countries. But at least right now, I don't personally see the changes coming suddenly or causing a dramatic loss of freedom. Now, having said that, We do know a day is coming when economic coercion is going to be used to force people to worship the Antichrist. Thankfully, that event is going to take place after God removes the church from earth.
0: Lester emailed us and says, On your program, you said that the greatest crime of all history was when we killed Jesus. I'm confused. The book of Acts refers repeatedly to who killed Jesus, and it doesn't even suggest or infer what you said. Your version of a gospel essentially places the blame for the murderous death of Jesus onto God the Father as a supposed prerequisite for our forgiveness. Can you provide me with one verse of Scripture which states clearly and unequivocally that God the Father punished Jesus while he hung on the cross as a substitute for God, punishing me in like manner?
1: Well, the gospel that you struggle with happens to be the one described by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 8. He says it's the gospel he preached, and he says it's the one by which you're saved, and it's this, Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture. It also includes his burial and resurrection from the dead, but note he died for our sins. That was the purpose for his death, as a substitute payment for what we ought to pay for our own sin. Now, you've asked for a verse saying God punished Jesus on the cross as a substitute for punishing us. Well, what comes to mind first? 2 Corinthians 5:21. He, that is God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then here's a bonus verse, 1 Peter 3:18. For Christ also suffered once for sin, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now, bottom line, don't try to blame others for the death of Jesus. Uh, He was willing to die to pay the penalty for your sin and for my sin. And that's the only way we can be reconciled to God. Uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Sure love getting these
0: questions, and yours is welcome anytime you should know that with a quick email to thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's book at moody.edu. Have you checked out our podcast yet? A lot of fun to listen when you want, where you want, how you want, on demand. It's there at the website, thelandandthebook.org. More to come on the program as we hear from Charlie Dyer's devotional. It's next, right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. From Moody Radio, it's the land and the book. Welcome back to our fourth and final segment of the program. I'm John Geiger, promising you're going to be glad you stuck around. Charlie's devotional is always uh, something that just rivets me to the scriptures themselves. And Charlie, I think when, when most of us think of summer, we wouldn't use the word pool and battle in the same
1: sentence, right? Uh, Not unless we're trying to fight our way to the edge of the ocean, but you're right, John. (laughs) They usually don't go together, but they do in our story today.
0: All right. I'm looking forward to that devotional, but uh, it's going to come after this quick testimony of someone who's been to Israel and and was deeply impressed by this.
1: Yeah, my name is Jack, and uh, this is my first trip to Israel. And the thing that I've been most impressed about, I think, is the fact that I came to the understanding that uh, when God created his nation of Israel and put it in this beautiful little place over here uh, how diverse how really remarkable a place it is from the volcanic peaks up in the Golan Heights down to the Dead Sea uh, it's just kind of a marvelous creation there and it just kind of made me have a feeling or understanding of how God really chose to bless the nation that he chose there if you were with us
0: last week you heard part one of the battles at the pool of Gibeon Charlie I'm looking forward to
1: part two (laughs) thanks John and I can see everybody still here waiting for me by the pool of Gibeon I hope you've taken some time to do a little exploring this is an archaeological gem that few who visit the land ever get to see mainly because of the current political tensions between Israel and the Palestinians and that's a shame because this would be a great stop on most tours. Just to our south is a well-known lookout known as Nevi Samuel, venerated as the tomb of the prophet Samuel by Jews, Christians, and Muslims. Unfortunately, it can't be Samuel's tomb, since the Bible says he was buried in his hometown of Ramah about three miles away. I believe Nevi Samuel is the biblical site of Mitzpah, and it became associated with Samuel because Samuel began his ministry as a prophet and judge by assembling Israel at Mitzvah in 1 Samuel 7. And he ended his time as judge by publicly anointing Saul as king at Mitzvah. And in between, Mitzvah became one of the stops on Samuel's travels as Israel's first, quote, circuit judge, as he journeyed between Bethel, Gilgal, Mitzvah, and Ramah. The event I want to focus on at the Pool of Gibeon today actually began at Navi Samuel, or Mitzvah, Following Jerusalem's destruction by the Babylonians. Jerusalem was in ruins, and Mitzbah was chosen as the temporary seat of government for the governor of the land appointed by the Babylonians. The new governor was named Gedaliah, and it looked as if peace might finally return to this war-ravaged land. Mitzbah was chosen as the new capital because it was one of the few towns that had not been destroyed by the Babylonians. It was relatively small and insignificant. Though its location atop the hill gave it a commanding presence, no wonder the location was named Mitspa, Watchtower. It was a great location from which to keep watch over the surrounding region. Sadly, this time of peace was short-lived. A member of the royal family named Ishmael came to the new governor at Mitspa. He'd been sent by the king of the Ammonites to kill the new governor. The Ammonite ruler no doubt knew that once peace returned to the region of Judah, his days would be numbered because. He had joined with Judah in rebelling against Babylon. His goal was to cause as much turmoil and rebellion as possible in Judah, to keep Nebuchadnezzar's forces tied down there, trying to keep the peace. The more Babylon struggled in Judah, the less likely it was that they would soon be able to attack Ammon. Word of the planned assassination had already reached Gedaliah, but for whatever reason, he refused to believe it was true. That was a fatal mistake on his part because while banqueting together, Ishmael and his 10 accomplices killed the governor, along with a number of the Jews serving with him, and the Babylonian soldiers left to guard the temporary capital. The next day, they also killed 70 Jewish pilgrims traveling south toward Jerusalem. At some point during this extended period of slaughter, a few people managed to escape to tell others living nearby what happened. Ishmael and his allies formed a quick escape plan, they took the surviving members of Judah's royal family, along with Jeremiah and a few others, and began a forced march from Nevi Samuel toward the capital of the Ammonites, now modern Ammon Jordan. But how would this band of fugitives travel there? Well, they first had to make their way down the north side of the hill on which Mitzpah was located. They then traveled across the central Benjamin Plateau to Gibeon, where we are right now. Likely their plan was to stock up on water and supplies here before attempting the long trek down into the Jordan Valley and up the other side toward the capital of the Ammonites. Word reached the deactivated army officers in nearby towns and villages who rushed to try to stop Ishmael, and Jeremiah records what happened next in chapter 41. They caught up with him near the great pool in Gibeon, right where you're sitting. The fleeing fugitives had only traveled a few miles, at least as far as the crow flies, but the journey had taken them from the top of Nevisamuel, nearly 3,000 feet in elevation, down to the floor of the valley, before climbing back up another 200 feet to the summit of Gibeon. And this ragtag band included the daughters of the royal household, plus older individuals like Jeremiah. They were a slow-moving convoy. This clash at Gibeon was apparently much less dramatic than the one in the time of David. Jeremiah provides a very sparse first-hand account. When the contingent of soldiers caught up to the group here by the pool, all the people Ishmael had taken captive at Mitzvah turned and went over to the band of pursuing soldiers. Evidently, Ishmael's small group of soldiers were surprised by the sudden appearance of this opposing force. Jeremiah then adds a cryptic note. But Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, and eight of his men escaped and fled to the Ammonites. Ishmael had started out with ten men, but now just eight escaped with him. Were two men killed during the initial slaughter at Mitzbah, or were they killed during this brief clash here at the Pool of Gibeon? From the way Jeremiah penned the account, it sounds as if the two men were killed during the clash here, forcing Ishmael and his remaining men to abandon the prisoners and escape east toward the Jordan Valley and Ammon. So, what lessons can we learn from this second clash here at the Pool of Gibeon? Sadly, the lesson follows in the next chapter. Jeremiah's rescuers panicked when they realized the governor appointed by Nebuchadnezzar along with his palace guards had been killed. They started fleeing toward Egypt, not stopping until they were near Bethlehem, 12 miles to the south. There they asked Jeremiah to go to God to see what they ought to do. Jeremiah interceded in prayer and God had him tell the group not to be afraid, but to remain in the land. If you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. After a lifetime of proving himself to be God's prophet, they now had a clear message from God, don't panic and run, stay and I'll protect you. Their response showed that in spite of all God had said and done through Jeremiah, they still refused to accept his message. You are lying. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt and settle there, but Baruch son of Nariah is inciting you against us to hand us over to the Babylonians so that they may kill us or carry us into exile to Babylon. And with that stinging rejection, the frightened mob carried Jeremiah and Baruch off with them to Egypt, ending up outside the promised land and outside God's place of blessing. And the lesson for us, as I see it, is to remember the importance of staying close to God, his revealed word, and the shepherds God raises up to proclaim his word Fear and perhaps jealousy over Baruch's closeness to Jeremiah as his faithful servant caused this ragtag group of soldiers to reject the very word of God they had promised to obey. They won a solid victory at the pool of Gibeon, only to throw it all away when they let fear cloud their judgment. Are you facing any fearful decisions in your life right now? If you are, just remember that the God who has been with you thus far will not suddenly abandon you. The words of an old gospel song are a good reminder to remain faithful to God. We've come this far by faith, leaning on the Lord, trusting in his holy word. He's never failed me yet. Whatever the problem is that you're facing today, just remember, he won't fail you. Just be sure you don't turn your back from trusting him. That's true in the physical struggles we face, like here at the Pool of Gibeon. And it's also true in the emotional and spiritual battles we face, which sometimes come after the actual physical struggle's done. Just remember, don't let down your guard and keep trusting God. Leaning, trusting, those are action words. Charlie, thank
0: you for that uh, sobering reminder. Appreciate your devotional. Uh, Thanks, John. And thank you for listening to The Land and the Book. Our producer, Dan Anderson, our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger with a big shout out to this station for Carving out airtime to let us share with you. Appreciate them. And if you like the land of the book, why not connect with us? An email is always welcome. The land and the book at moody.edu is how you can connect. Again, the land and the book at moody.edu. I'm John Gager. The land and the book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.